0: you to Severn to week seven of our series out of Mark's Gospel account that we're calling The Way of Jesus. And as I've said on the front end of all of these teachings, the heart behind this series is that there's a tendency in all of us to try to basically decide for ourselves who Jesus is and emphasize the parts of him that we like and cut out the parts that we don't really like. and uh, you know, challenge us in ways that we don't want to be challenged. And what we're left with is, a, is basically, you could call it a Jesus that we've created in our own image. And he's remarkably easy to follow, is he not? You know, he votes like us and he thinks and he lives like us and he likes the people we like and he hates the people that we hate and he doesn't ask us to do anything we don't want to do. Problem with that Jesus is he can't heal us and he can't change us because he's not real. He's just a projection of you and me and we need something other than a projection of you and me, What we need if we want to be changed and transformed and healed and set right and delivered the way that Jesus Christ can and has delivered so many people, what we need most primarily is the real Jesus. And that's exactly what we find in Mark's gospel account. So we're spending, I think it's going to be 14 weeks start to finish uh, between now and Easter when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the decisive victory over sin death, the grave, it's going to be a good day. So I mentioned a couple weeks back that we're right now in the middle of what you could refer to as a miniature series that's within this series, and the theme of it is the Lordship of Jesus. So we're actually on week three of this little four-week mini-series, and what we're doing is looking at four different passages that basically explain what the Bible is trying to get us to understand when it says that Jesus is Lord. We're looking at different ways that Jesus is Lord and different things and areas of life that Jesus is Lord over. So two weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus is Lord over religion. Last week, we talked about how he's Lord over the storms of life. This week, week I'm looking at a passage I have never taught uh, the, the likes of this passage in 10 years of preaching. But the theme of this message, because it's the theme of this passage, is that Jesus is Lord over the power of evil. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. It says, Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the region of the Gerasenes. As soon as Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. He lived in the tombs. No one was able to restrain him anymore, even with chains, because he often had been bound with shackles and chains, but had snapped off the chains and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. And always night and day he was crying out among the tombs and in the mountains and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him and he cried out with a loud voice, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you before God, don't torment me. For Jesus had told him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. What is your name? Jesus asked him. My name is Legion. He answered him, because we are many, and he kept begging him not to send them out of the region. Now a large herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside. The demons begged him, send us to the pigs so we may enter them, and he gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd of about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned there. The men who tended them ran off and reported it in the town, in the countryside, and people went to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the man who'd been demon-possessed by the legion sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. The eyewitnesses described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs. Then they began to beg him to leave their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who'd been demon-possessed kept begging him to be with him, but Jesus would not let him. Instead, he told him, go back home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So he went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and they were all amazed. This is God's word. What we're looking at this morning is the, it's the largest, it's the most detailed, and it is the most vivid description in the entire Bible of an exorcism. And I have to point this out on the front end. Um, God does have a sense of humor, and I know every Sunday is somebody's first Sunday, and I'm sure there's somebody listening to this right now, and you're thinking, so my friend invited me to church the Sunday that they talk about demon possession. It's because your friend thinks you're possessed by a demon, okay, all right? Don't shoot the messenger. It's going to be an awkward conversation on the drive home, but it, somebody needs to get the ball rolling. I have never taught on a passage like this before, and I don't know, I don't know that I feel more um, out of my depth here. Uh, but that's one of the reasons that we chose this passage. And so what we're going to talk about today, I want to look at this passage from three angles and what it shows us about, on the one hand, the complexity of evil. Number two, the pattern of evil, how it works once it takes hold, and you're in my life. And then thirdly, it's going to get heavy, but we're going to end on a high note. Spoiler alert, we always end talking about Jesus around here, so we always end on a high note. So lastly, we're going to talk about how evil can be defeated. So first and foremost, let's talk about the, the complexity of evil. This is, obviously, it's a story about demons, and if I was preaching a couple hundred years ago, I wouldn't really have to spend a lot of time on this because a couple hundred years ago, culture had a basic understanding that just as there is personal good that we call God, there is personal evil that we call the devil and his demons. But because I'm preaching in the late modern West, which is a, our culture is one that is increasingly marked by skepticism toward any kind of supernatural reality, I feel like I, I wouldn't be addressing the elephant in the room if, if I didn't at least speak to the fact that modern people... And I use this caveat all the time. Even if you don't think like this, I guarantee you people you know and love do. Modern people hear an account like the one that I just spent some time reading to you. And the first thought in their mind is this is exactly why you can't take the Bible seriously. One of the the most common critiques of the Bible that I've heard and historically, I haven't really had a good answer for it, is you'll hear people say things like, you know, the Bible was written by primitive people who believed in demons because they had a pre-scientific understanding of the world. Uh, They didn't understand how complex reality actually was. They didn't understand the nuances of physical illnesses and mental illnesses. They didn't understand things like solar eclipses or, God forbid, being born left-handed. And so they just sort of chalked everything up to there's a demon in there somewhere, and what do we do with witches? We burn witches kind of thing. So if the the people that wrote this book thought like that, then why on earth should we take anything that they wrote seriously? And I just want to be real clear here. I'll make a statement, and then I'm going to... Just give me about five minutes to try to tease it out and prove it to you. That mindset that, and that critique, that is a, I think it's a fair critique of most, of most if not all, ancient people. Uh, but it does not hold weight when you hold it up to the Bible. In other words, more clear way of saying this is that the biblical understanding of the demonic, of the fact that there really is evil forces in this world, the biblical understanding of the demonic is a part of what I consider to be the most intellectually satisfying, the most sophisticated, the most nuanced, and the least naive understanding of reality that, that exists in any worldview. And I, I'm going to try to take the time instead of just saying that to actually prove it to you. <clears throat> in Matthew chapter 4, verse 24, it says, then the news about Jesus spread through Syria, So they brought to Jesus, here's a phrase, all those who were afflicted. That's a blanket term that basically means people that are having a rough time in life. And I want you to pay really careful attention about the different categories that all who were afflicted is broken down into according to the Bible. So they bring to Jesus all those who were afflicted. Here's how that's broken down further. Those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics and the paralytics, and Jesus healed them. Now you read that at, at at face value, and what that proves, first and foremost, is that contrary to what a lot of people will say, the Bible makes a it, it makes a distinction. It respects the difference between physical illness and demon possession. Even in even in a time, in a place, in a culture when Uh, Really, no one else understood the differences or respected the differences. The Bible appreciates the difference between a physiological issue and a demonic issue. Not only that, you notice my version uses this word epileptics. This is going to sound real strange, but then I think it'll make sense to you. I just learned this this week. The Greek word for epileptics, uh, it's a word that literally means touched by the moon. It's talking about people who, literally translated, are touched by the moon. You say, "What on you know? What on earth does that mean?" That's actually the same word from which we get our word. This is about to make sense. Lunatic, lunatics. You hear the word "lunar" in there? Learn something new. I learned it this week. I like to pass on the education. That's a word that literally means it refers to anybody uh, that's dealing with insanity, with irrational thoughts or behavior, or with seizures. My point is. This verse here proves it, and we could look at other examples in the New Testament that prove it, but just this verse alone proves that not only in a time and place and culture when no one else appreciated and respected the differences here, not only did the Bible uh, respect the difference between a physical illness and demon possession, but also a mental illness and demon possession. And I say this to say that when you take the time to study how the Bible talks about the issues that, that we experience just as a, as a race, the human race. Uh, and when you take the time to study the way that the Bible talks about the issues that plague individual human hearts, you will find uh, that it is far more nuanced and satisfying and complex than anything you'll find in any other worldview, for instance. <clears throat> Back in 2020, the weeks after COVID hit, we were going through a series out of the book of Proverbs, and we dedicated a week in that series to talking about how to heal something that a number of people might be dealing with this morning. In fact, a group this size, I'm sure there's more a few of, more than a few of you listening to this right now. We dedicated a, work in a, a week in our series out of the book of Proverbs to talking about how to heal uh, what Proverbs calls a broken spirit. In the Bible, specifically in the Old Testament, the, the spirit, the human spirit, your spirit is what... Um, It's something along the lines of what we would call emotional energy today. Your spirit is basically what invigorates you to go out in life with some kind of excitement, some kind of anticipation. It's that force that drives you to go out and make a life for yourself. So according to the Bible, to have a broken spirit is to look out into life and to have no desire for it and to find no joy in it, which as I said, might very well be where more than a few of us are coming from this morning. Uh, a broken spirit can manifest itself, on the one hand, as something as, as simple as just a general restlessness, you know, an aimlessness, feeling like you don't really have a purpose, you, you, you kind of lost your why somewhere along the way. It can be, um, you know, just dis- discouragement, it can be anxiety, but when it's, when, it's, when it's most severe, a broken spirit, if left undealt with, if it remains unhealed in your and my life, it'll take away your desire to live altogether. So we, 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 we looked at what Proverbs has to say about what do you do when you get there. And on the front end of that teaching, I'll never forget this. I mean, I always respected the Bible. I've, I've you know, been born and raised believing it's the word of God. But in that teaching, we did uh, on the front end of it, we surveyed what Proverbs has to say about all of the potential causes that can lead to a broken spirit in an individual human being. And it was amazing the nuance and the complexity there. And i have just kind of given you the 30,000 foot view. But according to the book of Proverbs, just this one book you survey it end to end, a broken spirit can have a physical cause. In which case it might just be that you're overworked and you need to rest. And that might resolve the issue. But Proverbs also says a broken spirit can have an emotional relational cause. It could be that you are just completely isolated from people that, that know you and love you and you need to invite them into your life and, and, and you know, be healed by community and have them speak in life to you. Proverbs says that a a, uh, broken spirit can have a moral cause, meaning it very well might be that there's behavior in your life that's detrimental to your soul that you need to just get honest about and stop. Full stop, cold turkey. Broken spirit can can be the result of a moral issue. Uh, According to Proverbs, a broken spirit can have an existential cause, meaning it might be that you're just having what kind of the more um, psychological world would refer to as an existential or midlife crisis. It could just be that you're at this place in life where you realized... Hey, I used to kind of wonder about what I was going to be when I grow up, and now I'm that, and I thought it would be more than this. And I thought life would hand me more than it's given me, but it's pretty much given me what it's going to give me, and it's not that satisfying. And you realize that, you know, before it's said and done, life's going to take everything from us, and you're kind of crumbling under the weight of that. That's an existential cause Proverbs talks about. And lastly, Proverbs validates that uh, um, a broken spirit can, can, can boil down to like a faith issue. Meaning it could be that what you and I have done is we've looked to someone or something other than God to make our life worth living and to be and do for us when only God can be and do for us. And in the wake of realizing that they have let us down, we're kind of in a... Ta- like anyone will let us down, by the way. Uh, we've been sent into a tailspin, and that's where our broken spirit's coming from. So let me just pause here and, and ask what perhaps you're asking. How did we get from Jesus casting out legion to the potential causes of a broken spirit? Here's why I, I walk you through this. Because what Proverbs specifically talks about when it, when it deals with why you might have a broken spirit and what the, what the Bible is talking about from end to end, when, when you just look at, at, at what the Bible is telling you about you, you'll find that the Bible has a way of honoring the totality and the complexity of your existence as a human being like no other worldview in history. That when you compare Christianity to any other worldview, you'll find that, that every other worldview tries to reduce you to just one aspect or one dimension of who the Bible says you are. Now, let me walk through that a little bit because you'd, be, you'd probably be surprised at how often you hear this without even recognizing it. For instance, some worldviews are basically materialistic, and I think secularism falls into this. According to secularism, the story that secularism tells you about yourself is that you are, pardon me if this sounds crass, the unplanned pregnancy of the universe. You are nothing more than the accidental collocation of atoms. You are a physical being, and there's nothing more to you than that. When you die, you will feed the flora and the fauna as you fed on the flora and the fauna during your lifetime. This is like Neil deGrasse Tyson seminar 101. So according to a worldview like that, if you have a problem, you are basically a physical being. Therefore, your solution must basically be physical. And so the answer is take a pill. That's a worldview that reduces you to just the material, to just the physical. Other worldviews are, are far, they're, they're basically psychological. That means that whatever your issue is, then what you need is just talk through it and then you know, come to acceptance. And, and, and that will resolve the issue. Some, some worldviews are, are basically moralistic. And I hope this doesn't sound offensive because I certainly don't mean to come across this way, but, and I'm not an expert, but I think it's fair to say that Hinduism actually falls into that. Right? According to Hinduism, what we're trying to do is navigate the karmic cycle of reincarnation. And Hinduism actually teaches that whatever you're experiencing right now in your life it is owed to who you were and what you did in a past life. So there's really no such thing as unjust suffering within the context of Hinduism. That's an extremely moralistic worldview. And, and you even see this show up in the Bible with Job's friends. When Job experiences a profound amount of suffering, his friends basically say there's no way God would let somebody go through this unless you morally did something wrong, which the whole book of Job is basically written to say wrong. That is an unbiblical assessment. But according to a, a very moralistic worldview, then if you have problems, it's because you've done something wrong and what you need to do is stop and just try to be a better person. Right, then you have, and you you hear this a lot in politics, some worldviews try to reduce us to just the intellectual, like we're just mental beings, And, and so you'll hear like politicians when they talk about the problems that ail society, the solution is what? It's education. If we just knew more, then we would be better. The problem with that is we have this horrible thing called the internet, you may have heard of it, and I think it's made everything a whole lot worse. I have no idea why they call them smartphones, just being honest. We are the most, oh, and I, I want to be clear here, I think education's great. I think high quality education is a very good thing. But if that's all it took to fix an individual human being or a society, we would have been fixed a real long time ago. And then you have, of course, some worldviews that are basically superstitious. No matter what your problem is, it has a spiritual cause. There's a demon along the the line somewhere that we got to cast out or a generational curse we need to hear or maybe you had a Ouija board in a closet in the house you grew up in and we haven't dealt with that or whatever it is. My point is when you hold up all of those worldviews, those understandings of what ails you or what ails humanity in general alongside the Bible, you'll find that the Bible is far more complex. It's far more nuanced. It's, it's far more multi-dimensional and satisfying uh, when it comes to what's really going on inside of a human heart. And so if you were to to approach the entire Bible cover to cover and ask the question, what is wrong with the world? And what is wrong with me in particular? The answer that you're going to get after surveying all of Scripture is, it's complicated. And I don't like that answer any more than you do, but there's a part of us that knows that that's right, which is why it is so difficult to reform a society and why it's so difficult to heal and change and transform an individual human being it's complicated. And I say all of this to say that if you and I move out into life with a less nuanced understanding of human nature than what the Bible would offer us, if we try to reduce our problems to just physical problems or just mental problems or just emotional, psychological, spiritual problems, we're going to make a mess of our lives. So there's the complexity of evil. Uh, that it might not explain everything that goes on, but it explains far more than people give it credit for. That's what the Bible says. There's the complexity of evil, but from there, and this is perhaps where we get a little bit more unsettling, but I promise you on the front end, we are gonna end on a high note. Now let's talk about the pattern of evil, how it actually works itself out on an individual level. Um, Our English translations, and maybe this is partly because of Hollywood or whatever, but I think the... The way that, that our English versions of the Bible translate this term, demon-possessed or demon-possession, I think what that, that's wound up doing is, is it's given us a little bit of a false sense of security. All right, Maybe it's because of Hollywood, but when you think about demon-possession, there's probably an image that comes to your mind. and it's this, um, it's this image of somebody who has completely lost all constitution of their body. Uh, they've been completely taken over by a foreign entity in a very obvious and sinister way. You know, So they're kind of crawling on the ceiling with their heads spinning around in circles and speaking with a new voice in an ancient Sumerian dialect or something like that. And the false sense of security there is that as long as that's what demon possession is, that certainly hasn't happened to me. That's kind of an aberration in history if it's ever happened to anybody really. And so I guess we're safe. The problem with that is that's not really what the Bible teaches when it comes to the influence of the demonic. Interestingly enough, when the Bible talks about a demon-possessed person, Uh, it never actually uses the word possession. What I mean there is, and I'll I'll try to walk this through because it's a little bit complicated, the Bible never talks about demon possession as though you're either not possessed or you are possessed. The Greek word describing a demon-possessed person is just one Greek word, and it basically means demonized. It's referring to somebody who is under the influence of of, of the demonic, so let me give you two Bible verses that, that sort of maybe unpack this idea in a helpful way. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, Paul talks about the danger of, of pride, something that you know, we all struggle with. If you don't, you're more prideful than everybody else because you don't realize that you do. And what Paul says the problem with pride is, in 1 Timothy 3, 6 and 7, is that pride, if undealt with, it will bring you under the condemnation of the devil and it will cause you to fall into what Paul calls the trap or the snare of the devil. Pride will do that. And then in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 26 and 27, Paul says that simply being angry with someone. And if this doesn't sober you, I, he says simply being angry with somebody and letting the sun go down on your anger, which is the Bible's way of talking about letting anger fester, uh, and become bitterness and resentment. Paul says what that anger does when it's undealt with in your life is it provides an opportunity or a foothold for the devil. So you you put just those two verses together, and here's the teaching of Scripture. Again, I'll just say, if this doesn't make you sit up straight, I don't know that you're really paying attention to this. Paul is saying that, that, that Sins as seemingly benign, seemingly benign to us as pride and anger. Who doesn't deal with pride? Who doesn't deal with anger? Paul says if, if those sins, not witchcraft, not Ouija boards, not whatever, if pride and anger are allowed to run unchecked in our lives, what those sins do is they open you and I up to be under the influence of evil forces that if they're not eventually dealt with, they will seek to tear apart all that God would bring together in our lives and in the lives of those closest to us. And even though you might not be crawling on the ceiling with your head spinning around in circles, you are, by biblical definition, you are demonized. And so I say all of this to say that the difference between a a possessed person and a person who's not possessed is not a difference of nature. It's a difference of degree. Because the same patterns of evil are at work in every single human heart. It's just a question of to what degree are they operative in your and my life. So so that raises the question. We keep talking about this pattern of evil. So what is the pattern? I mean, how does it actually work? What does it manifest itself as? What does it desire to do? And Mark answers that question really vividly in the way that he describes This man here in Mark 5. Let me read verses 3 through 5 to you. It says, He lived in the tombs. No one was able to restrain him anymore, even with chains, because he often had been bound with shackles and chains, but had snapped off the chains and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. And always, night and day, he was crying out among the tombs and in the mountains, and cutting himself with stones. If there's one conviction that has been increasingly developed in me the more that I've spent time in the Bible, it's that there's just no wasted words in this book. Every single detail that God saw fit to record and preserve throughout human history is important in showing us something. So I don't know how much time you've ever spent in this story, but I would just ask you to consider, really think about this picture that Mark is painting of this person here. This is a person who's made a pact with evil. I, was, I, was, um, I read, actually, I think it was five commentaries on this passage, and I came across this in one of the commentaries. It says, The opening verses of this chapter describe in some detail a human being who was an appalling collection of contradictions. He was an antisocial outcast who didn't stray far from the centers of population. He lived in the place of the dead, Yet he went on living. He could not be bound even with iron shackles, but he was not free in any sense. What you're seeing here this is the picture of someone who, on the one hand, he's incredibly well known. I mean, everybody in town knew him, but he is entirely alone, he is entirely isolated in his affliction. You're seeing somebody who is extremely powerful yet he's tearing himself apart. He's self-destructive. He's literally destroying his own body. This is the picture of someone who cannot be bound, even by iron shackles. That represented the pinnacle of technology in that day. Could not be bound, but was more enslaved than anyone else in his town. And one more thing here. I don't know if you caught this. It's really interesting to me. Nowhere in this story is this man given a name. Every time he's referred to, he's just the man who was possessed by a demon. That's really, it's noteworthy to me because the demon, we find out, does have a name. When Jesus asks for it, he gets an answer there. That's instructive. Even after the demon's cast out, we still don't learn this man's name. That's instructive. More often than not, that's the Bible's way of communicating that this is an individual, this is a man who has completely lost his sense of self. So once again, just see the irony here. This is a man who has multiple personalities, Literally, he has a legion of personalities swirling around inside of him and directing the course of his life, and yet he has completely lost all sense of self. No idea who he is. No identity. He's lost himself. This is the picture of someone who has made a pact with evil. Now again... It, it, this, is, this is exactly where my mind would be if I was listening to me now. I'd hear that and I'd say, hey, that's, that's really interesting. Maybe I've never read the story that way in theory. I, you know, that's kind of cool to think about. But, I, you know, I haven't made a pact with evil. I haven't made a pact with anything. And if that's where your mind goes, if I could just push back on that a little bit, let me offer to you, uh, you may not have made a pact with evil. But according to the Bible, Every single human being, regardless of what we say we believe, every, we, don't have an op, we don't even have an option but to do this. It's a function of our design. It's a function of the human heart. Every single one of us has made a pact with something other than God that we're looking to and hoping that it will give us what the Bible asserts only God can give us. It's just a question of whether or not we know ourselves enough to know what that thing or those things are. Now, if, you, if you've been in this church for any length of time, you've heard me read this quote before. Pardon me for being redundant, but I don't know of anybody that explains this concept better than David Foster Wallace. Just a, a, a real quick kind of um, pretext here. Wallace was not a Christian. I think that's the most important thing to understand before I read what he says. Uh, the words that I'm about to read you are a part of a larger speech that he gave during the, the commencement address at Kenyon College in 2005. Um, Sadly, he went on to, to end his life not long after this commencement address, but he was not a follower of Jesus. He just had remarkable insight into human nature. And, and I, I don't know anybody that's put in, in a more helpful way this idea that the human heart, it, it doesn't have an, all of us make pacts with something. Here, here, here's how I put it. <clears throat> in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, there it is, he's not a believer, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. I just want to point out here, that's what Mark 5, 1 to 20 is showing us. Someone who worshiped something that wasn't safe to worship and it was literally eating him alive until Jesus saved him. He elaborates. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you'll feel weak and afraid. You'll need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. I usually ended the quote there, uh, but I just want to read you three or four more sentences. He says The insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious, they're default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into, day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the world of men, money, and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear, contempt, frustration, craving, and the worship of self. And I just would respectfully say, if you don't believe that that quote applies to you, it could be that you simply haven't faced yourself yet. And even if you, you know, I think it's easy, especially for Christians, to, to hear something like that and say, well, sure, everybody worships, but I worship Jesus. We just got done worshiping Jesus a few minutes ago. But on this side of eternity, until God glorifies us and takes away every sinful tendency of our still flawed human hearts, There's something, or maybe it's a few things, competing for the center of our hearts. And so the question that this story in Mark 5 should primarily get you and I to ask ourselves, as unsettling as it might be, the question is, what is the functional center of my life? Regardless of what I say, regardless of what answers I would put down on the test, what's actually at the center? Meaning, what gets me out of bed in the morning? What's the thing that I turn to again and again to help ease the pain of life? What's the thing that if I have it, I'm, I, 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 I fear losing it more than anything else? Or if I don't have it yet, I desire getting it more than anything else? Because whatever your answer is to that question, that thing functionally, that is your master. I think the great illusion of the secular society we live in is that there's such a thing as freedom. We are controlled by the thing we love most. And those masters will, will upend us, they will destroy us, they will take everything from us before it's said and done. That's what David Foster Wallace was saying, that's what Mark's trying to communicate here, that any master other than Jesus will drive us like a slave master through life until it drives us off of a cliff if we don't figure out how to get a hold of it, if, that's not, if that remains undealt with. And one final thing I'll say here, and this is probably even more unsettling, so if you can just kind of Bear down with me for a second here. I don't know if you noticed this in the description of the man in verse 3. Did you catch that it says no one could restrain this man anymore? What that means is that at one point in this man's life, he could be restrained. He could be contained. But then something happened one day. He crossed this barrier, and he was fully out of control. The teaching of uh, of the Bible there is that evil is gradual. That's how it works. It would be great. Would it not be great if, if, if the way the devil worked is he showed up in our life and said, listen, I'm going to give you whatever the thing it is that you most want. I'm going to give you the high-powered career and all the money and all the fame and all the power and all the influence and all the respect that comes with it. But in return, I'm going I'm to turn you into a miserable narcissist that causes incredible pain to the people closest to you and even to yourself. And by the time you're done walking that path, you will find not only did your career fail to satisfy the deep longings of your heart, but it ruined everything in your life along the way. It'd be great if the devil showed up that way. It's not the way he operates. And the picture of this story here in Mark chapter 5 is that evil always seems Not only does it seem manageable at first, it seems beneficial. The little packs we make, the little compromises we make. This man was powerful because of the pact that he made. There was some at least initial benefit. It seems manageable. It seems controllable. It seems harmless. But if left unchecked, sooner or later, you and I will wake up in a tomb wondering how on earth did I get here? And the answer according to the Bible is gradually that's how you got there. It's about as heavy as I get, so I appreciate you all hanging on. It's about to, we're about to get up out of the hole here, but thanks for being here with me. If we've talked about the complexity of evil and the pattern of evil, then let's just let this raise the question that it naturally raises. Because if it's true, what what Paul is saying, with even these benign sins like pride and anger, which every one of us, if we had a shred of self-awareness, we can say, yeah, those dwell in my heart to a greater degree than I realize. If this pattern of evil, if it exists in all of us because none of us love the Lord our, our God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength and center our lives perfectly on him and rest fully in his finished work, if the pattern is at work in us because we're making packs with things and looking to something or someone to be and do what only God can be and do for us, then the question this, of course, raises is how on earth can evil be defeated? That's where we're going to end. <clears throat> and the clear teaching of this passage is that we defeat evil by recognizing who has power over evil and connecting with that person. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say this probably doesn't surprise you, but the person who has the power over evil is the Lord Jesus Christ. In this passage, what we're shown here is that Jesus speaks to a legion of demons, an army of demons, And they do whatever it is that he tells them to do instantly. And if you were here last week, you kind of noticed the same theme when Jesus spoke to the storm. Jesus doesn't have to call on a higher power to exercise this demon. He stands on his own two feet and simply commands it because Jesus is the highest power in the universe. But in dealing with these demons, Jesus sends them into a herd of pigs. Which, of course, raises the question... What the heck is that about? I read two sermons on this passage and five commentaries expecting you to ask me the question that I would ask, which is, what do pigs have to do with this? These poor pigs hanging out in the field and they get dragged off of a cliff. What's going on there? If there's no waste of detail in Scripture, what are we meant to learn? And what I found is People don't really agree about this. There's lots of object lessons you you, you could pull from this. On the one hand, perhaps sending the demons into this herd of pigs shows exactly how valuable a single individual soul is to Jesus. He had no problem destroying 2,000 pigs for the sake of one poor soul. That's a very comforting thing to me. Another thing that, that you could draw from this, and this is a lot more sobering, is that Jesus sent the demons into the pigs to show us what evil desires to do if left unchecked in our lives. I mean, immediately, when they take hold of those pigs, it drives them, it controls them, it sends them off a cliff and kills them. That's a great metaphorical picture of what evil wants to do when you're in my life, to completely put both hands on the wheel, drive us off the metaphorical cliffs of life, and drown us in the the ocean of despair, whatever. But I think underneath all of those surface-level observations, there's one extremely important lesson here. To understand it, you just need to, basically you need to read this story through the lens that Mark's original readers would have read it through. Because when modern people read this story, we, we see 2,000 pigs sailing off a cliff and we say there's poor little pigs, but the people back then didn't think that way. They didn't see these poor innocent animals hopping off a cliff. They saw a whole lot of money sinking in the ocean. They saw generational wealth being sacrificed for the sake of this one Man. And when you zoom out from that far enough, what's clear, and I really believe this is exactly how Mark's original readers would have read this, and hang with me because we're almost done here. The teaching here is that when Jesus deals with the evil in your life, it comes at an incredibly high price. And the question that this passage begs just just picture you're reading Mark's gospel for the very first time, you don't know how it ends. The question that this begs after Mark chapter 5, verse 20 is okay, if it costs that much to deal with the evil in just one human heart, then what's the price that needs to be paid to deal with the evil in us all? How much would that cost? And the answer comes at the end of Mark's gospel. It's an amazing thing, you read this, when Jesus heals the man, we're told, just like that, he's clothed, he's in his right mind, and it almost looks like, man, Jesus just snapped him out of it, but you get to the end of Jesus' life, and what you'll find is the, the reason that Jesus could deal with the evil in this man's heart is because he essentially, at the end of his life, he exchanged places with him. I mean, the parallels are undeniable. You look at Jesus at the end of Mark's gospel account and you'll find that Jesus, just like this man, Jesus himself knows what it is to be stripped naked. Jesus himself is calling out, his body broken and bleeding. Jesus himself is is incredibly well known by everybody. He's a spectacle, but he's crucified out the gate. He's completely alone. He's completely isolated in his suffering. And before it's said and done, just like the man in this story, Jesus Christ himself was driven into a tomb. That's how Jesus dealt with evil. And what the gospel is showing us there is that Jesus absorbed evil into himself. He took it on himself, on the cross, and he put it in the grave so that he could wipe out evil without having to wipe us out. And it's only in seeing that and understanding that that evil can be defeated, and you're in my life. And and here's why, here's why. It's one thing to know in an intellectual way that Jesus Christ died by Roman crucifixion, but when that knowledge becomes personal, meaning when, when you begin to understand that Jesus went through everything that he went through because that was the only way to deal with the evil in your life without ending you, when you understand what it cost him, you begin to understand how valuable you are to him, how loved you are in him, and how safe and how secure you are because of his life, his death, and his resurrection. That's the only way that evil can be defeated in our lives because the more that we understand what Jesus has done for us and what it means for us, the more we realize that no one and nothing in this life could possibly give us what Jesus Christ gives us So we stop asking them to. I'm gonna call the worship team up and we're gonna end with this. A little while ago, I was listening to a pastor who used to preach out in Portland. He said something that really hit home with me. He said, The goal of the Christian life is to have Jesus as our God, and everything else is a gift. And the problem in our lives is that we get it reversed, that we treat Jesus as just a gift. And we ask everything and everyone else to be our God, whether our spouse or our kids or our careers or our bodies or or our possessions or whatever it is. We rest the weight of our existence on these things, expecting them to save us, to satisfy us, to heal this deep wound inside of us and to make our lives worth living. And whether or not we want to admit it or not, because it's a painful thing to admit, that more than anything else is what leads to all the breakdown we see in this world all the breakdown we see in our relationships and the breakdown we experience in our individual, personal lives. I was struggling to figure out how to end this teaching. I got up at five in the morning and I wrote this. I didn't have time to get real acquainted with it, so I'm just gonna read it to you word for word and we'll end with this. I know I've said that like seven times now. We're actually gonna end this time. <laughs> the more the gospel comes home to us, the more we'll realize no career could give me the significance that Jesus Christ has given me. No amount of money could give me the security that Jesus Christ has given me. And no human being could give me the love, the identity, the sense of purpose that Jesus Christ has given me. Those needs are met in him in an infinite way. And as we realize that, We grow in the ability to stop asking everything and everyone else to be and do what only Jesus can be and do for us. And now we're free to embrace what God gives us with gratitude and to go and do for others what God through Christ has done for us, to live lives of self-giving love. That's how evil is defeated, both in our hearts and in this world. And it's only possible by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us. Loving us so much you were willing to take the place of that poor, hopeless, demoniac in Mark chapter 5. Willing to be stripped naked. Willing to have your body broken. Willing to experience isolation and forsakenness the depths of which we'll never have to experience. Also, that you could end evil without ending us. Jesus, every one of us has a tendency to look to something or someone to give us what only you can give us. I just ask this morning, you begin to open our eyes in a new way, maybe for the first time, or maybe just in a new way, to what we have in you, to how much you love us, and how so many of our efforts in this life are just us looking outside of you for that love. But it's, it's right there. It's at the foot of the cross. You yeah, have enough for every one of us. Please help us to see how much you value us, how much you treasure us, how safe we are in you, how secure we are in you, how as followers of Jesus, we live with the hope of resurrection that no matter how bad it gets down here, one day it's gonna be so good, it's gonna outweigh the bad. We're gonna have the life that we always wanted bodies we always wanted, the relationships we always wanted, no one and nothing can take it away from us. Please help us to know that now and live out the truth of that so that we can stop looking at everything else other than you, so that we can be so changed by your self-giving love. We can show it to the person you, you placed in our life. We know nothing makes you happier than that. That's what we want to do, Father. It's the greatest life there is. Thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord over the forces of evil. It's in his name we pray. All God's people said. Amen.